Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and I'd like to personally thank you for tuning in for yet another amazing interview episode where we pull up a chair with another expert who's truly at the top of their field. But before we jump in, I've got one quick favor to ask, and that favor is please, please, please take the time to think of one or two people you know who might also get a kick out of listening to this podcast. Personal podcast recommendations, at least in my experience, hold a ton of weight. That's almost exclusively how I find new stuff to listen to. I'll be chatting with somebody I know, they'll drop a recommendation, and there's probably a better than 50% chance that I'll actually check it out. So that's like, that's pretty good. So if you've gotten any value out of the Modern Bar Cart podcast, please help spread the word. All it takes is a quick text or an email, maybe a post-it note to that one friend, family member, or coworker who shares your interest in cocktails and home bartending. Doesn't matter what podcasting app they'll use, if they type in Modern Bar Cart Podcast, we'll show up. So thank you for helping us out in that way. And as a reward, I think it's time to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is the New York Sour, which is actually a cocktail we discuss later on in this episode, but we mistakenly refer to it actually as the Brooklyn cocktail, which is a separate thing altogether. See, the problem actually here is that New York City has cocktails named after each borough in addition to all the other cocktails that have been invented there through the years. So it's kind of easy to get them confused every once in a while. But later on, when you hear us talking about the Brooklyn, we're talking about this cocktail, the New York Sour. So let's take a quick look at it. And in its simplest form, really, it's just a whiskey sour with a red wine float. According to a recipe by Imbibe Magazine, you're going to need two ounces of rye whiskey, one ounce lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, one egg white, which is optional, but on my part, definitely recommended. And finally, one ounce of Malbec wine. But if you don't have Malbec, any robust red will do the trick. This is one of those cocktails where you want to start off with a dry shake. And this is where you combine the liquid ingredients minus the wine, but including the egg white in a shaker with no ice, no ice at first, and shake it briskly for about 15 seconds. Then you're going to add ice to the shaker, shake it Again, shake it nice and hard for about another 15 seconds and then strain into a rocks glass over a nice large ice cube or sphere. And then you're gonna top it all off with that one ounce of red wine. Add a nice little red float on top. It's a beautiful, beautiful cocktail. The New York Sour is also a really refreshing cocktail. And one of the reasons why it came up in our conversation this episode is because it's a really great opportunity to swap in Madeira for the recommended Malbec in the recipe. And that's gonna yield a richer, slightly more decadent take on this cocktail. We'll talk more about that later, but now it's time to introduce this week's guest, 
sommelier and Madeira expert Michael Scafidi. Some of the things we discuss in this wide-ranging conversation include how Michael changed his career aspirations from music mogul to wine expert, which led him to become a sommelier at some of the most influential restaurants in the country. Why Madeira has such a special place in the world of fortified wines, including stories about 300-year-old bottles, burning islands, and eyepatch-wearing explorers. The principal grapes, styles, and label claims that will help you decide which variety of Madeira is right for you next time you visit the liquor store. The similarities between a master sommelier and an expert disc jockey. What to drink when you're hanging out with Shaquille O'Neal and much, much more. Listening to Michael talk about flavor and recall some of his favorite bottles of Madeira is like being transported And I think he would agree with me when I say that the joy of encountering something really old or really special in the world of wine and spirits is that it has that mystical power to transport you to another time and place with flavor. So with that in mind, I hope you enjoy this fascinating deep dive into Madeira with expert and sommelier, Michael Scafidi. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Eric. So today we're going to be speaking about Madeira, which is, as far as I understand it, a type of fortified wine. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So you have, I've been told, a great deal of knowledge on this and have spent some time seriously studying it. So I'm excited to dive in. But could you first, just for our listeners, tell people about your background and how you came to be doing what you're doing now and and how you learned so much about Madeira along the way? Well, I'll, I'll go back in time about almost... 20 years. So I I was a bartender in Los Angeles and I was studying to get my degree in screenwriting. I thought this time today I'd be a music video director living in LA and uh, wearing mink coats or something silly like that. But while I was bartending, I saw a guy who was a banjo playing surfing sommelier. I had no idea what a sommelier was. I'm like, what is he doing? He just looks like he's having so much fun. He's smiling all the time, tasting wines, he's educating. So I, I asked him, I said, how did you get into this? And he's like, you know, you seem very curious. You should take the intro master sommelier test. This was 2001, 2002. So I went for it, took the test. I was nervous. Um, and the next thing I know, um, I said, you know what? Um, after school, I'm just going to keep trying to be a sommelier. I'm going to see, see what it's like. Moved to Santa Barbara. Soon after moving to Santa Barbara, California, um, I became a sommelier at the French Laundry. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's a really well-known restaurant. Yeah. And I was nervous and excited. And it's probably where I first caught the bug for Madeira. It's definitely where. There's a dish there that they often give as an extra course, which is essentially this broth that's made with veal stock, black truffles and a black truffle ragu. It's awesome. My boss at the time was this, someone I, I kind of con- still consider a mentor. His name is Paul Roberts. And he said, try Madeira with it. And I'm like, cool. And he's like, hey, try this. And it was a 1910 Circeal from Barbieto. And I'm like, oh my God, this is life-changing. This wine is, at the time it was, just under a hundred years old and trying it together, it was the most beautiful pairing that I'd seen in a long time. So that's where I first kind of had a taste for it and caught the bug. 
mean, it almost sounds silly that my first bug was something that was almost 100 years old. So a- after French Laundry, you know, like a lot of young sommeliers want to do, I wanted really to run my own program. So I moved to West Virginia from Napa Valley. So Californians probably shouldn't move to West Virginia, but I mm-hmm. learned a lot there. So I, I was the uh, director of beverages at the Greenbrier. Okay. And, and is that in Morgantown or? Uh, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Okay. Still, okay. It still has this historic bunker that you know can seat all of Congress and, and the Senate. And it's a beautiful property. So I was there for just under a year and a half. And uh, while I was there... Um, I got contacted by the people who are reopening the Jefferson Hotel in Washington, D.C. And so they said, hey, uh, why don't you come here and consult for us while you're still in West Virginia? So this is in 2008. And in 2009, I came on full time. And I had about a year before they opened. So I did as much as I could to research kind of the passions of Thomas Jefferson, what he liked, what he enjoyed. I wanted to know the exact vineyards that he actually went to. Madeira is a natural choice when building a program of that size. So I went out to eat with Manny Burke. We went to Resica, the original Resica. Great spot. Um, And I just picked his brain. And I said, Manny, I want to learn as much as I can. Manny is definitely the world expert on Madeira and many things on rare wine, period. So I talked to him and I knew he had some old stock. And at the time, opening the Jefferson, we really didn't have a quote-unquote budget. So I said, I want some wines from the 18th century. I know they exist. And he said, oh, we don't have any. And I said, I know you have them. What do I got to do to prove it to you? That I, that I love wine, that I love this product. So I showed him the first copy of my, my uh, wine list. And it had about 30 or 40 SKUs from Madeira. And I said, this is what I have. This is what I want to do. But I said, it's not going to be great until I have something. I want wine where Thomas Jefferson was actually alive when I build this program. So he was able to get me three different wines from the 1700s. Uh, one was from 1780. One was from 1795. And it was amazing. At the time, you know, when we opened, we were only charging, sounds like a lot of money, but $180 for a shot from something from the 18th century is kind of cool. Right. Yeah. And that's, I'm mean, just to put it in perspective, when you look on a wine list or even, you know, I get emails from, from one of my favorite liquor stores here in DC, Schneider's of Capitol Hill, and they frequently offer old rare Bordeaux and, and an old rare Bordeaux is simply something from like the fifties or forties or the, or the eighties even or yeah. the nineties is considered old now. So, yeah. So, uh, to put that, you know, 50 to 70 year, Bordeaux wine next to a 300 plus year, you know, Madeira is really an exercise in, in jumping through time. Totally. I, I I always call it like the time traveling machine when I think about Madeira. So I was at the Jefferson for, um, about six years. Absolutely still have a lot of love for that property. We were able to find maps from Thomas Jefferson's exact travels. Uh, when I left, we had nearly 50 Madeira by the glass. Um, the oldest at that time was from 1720. I moved to New York, moved to New York, and in New York, I was at Union Square Cafe as the last wine director before they closed. And then I got the opportunity to be uh, in charge of the wine and beverage program, at the time, the Three Michelin John George. Oh, wow. So I was there for a good amount of time. Love that job. I'd seen, um, we had a huge selection of Madeira, which kind of, I mean, my print always to have a large selection of Madeira. I'd never really, not even French Laundry, not the Jefferson, I've never seen 
wine sales that I'd seen at John George. It's mm-hmm. pretty much unparalleled to anywhere that I've worked. Got it. So just so, so people know uh, who are listening, what does a sommelier do? Take us through a, a usual shift, because I think this is something that people have heard of, but unless you have the money to go out to a really, really nice restaurant and then also order wine at said restaurant, I guess people might not be familiar with everything that, that goes into it. Well, a sommelier, you know, there's two different concepts, ways of thinking of it. You know, the way I think of it is as a sommelier, it is the job, almost the same job as a DJ who is just playing music and saying, you should drink Burgundy today. You should drink a California Cabernet Sauvignon. You should drink a bottle from the Rhone. You should drink a bottle from Spain. And it's figuring out what the guest likes and making that music be what they want to hear. That's mm-hmm. the, that, that is the actual role of a sommelier is listening and at the same time figuring out what someone wants to enjoy best. So that's the essential role. The stuff that's not as much fun, putting away 10, 20, 30 cases of wine a day, long hours, running, smiling, using your brain at every hour of the day and at night. But what comes with it is a lot of passion, a lot of love, you know, I think friendships, you know, in the wine world, in the alcohol world, period, are, are pretty amazing because you're just, you're filled with people who inspire each other, inspire right. people to drink. I mean, that's, can't think of a much better job than that. Yeah, it's it's great. People tend to uh, enjoy it when you show up. Totally. Uh, yeah, we we experience the same thing. Whenever Modern Bar Cart shows up at an event, people are like, oh, it's the cocktails. The cocktails are here. Everyone's instantly happier. So, we've been talking about kind of your trip through Madeira a little bit, and I'm wondering if we might be able to give folks at home a sense of where Madeira fits into the canon of spirits, wines, and more specifically, the aromatized fortified wines. So Madeira is absolutely a wine. And in many ways, it's the most powerful wine in the world, period, because it doesn't go bad or shouldn't go bad, essentially. You can have a wine, you know, we can drink a wine from the year I was born, the year you were born today, drink half of it, come back to it in 20 years, and it's still going to be great. Madeira itself, it is a fortified wine. It is similar than port, albeit completely opposite. Okay, and what do you mean by that? That's, that sounds like a very, to my mind, very logical thing to be saying because I've got the background, but can you just tease that out? Of, of course, yeah. So I, I think the first relationship is when people look at port. They, they see a bottle of Madeira. It has the same bottle shape. They see a bottle of port. It's the same bottle shape. They're both Portuguese. The difference is Madeira must be from the island of Madeira, which in terms of geography, this is about a six hour trip to Lisbon, another hour due west on a very small plane to the uh, airport of Funchal. And so this is an island, a very bucolic, beautiful island just surrounded by black sand. And literally you could see every vineyard on this island in about four hours, so it's tiny. Port and Madeira are similar in the way that you pick the grapes, the wine ferments, you add a neutral spirit, which is essentially brandy, mm-hmm. to bring up the alcohol level between 19 to 21%. It is at that moment that the similarities stop. Port itself is then bottled. After about two years, you might pop a bottle. You might pop it after 50, 100 years, just like Madeira. But after two or three days, port will go bad. Mm-hmm. Port has a unquestionably kind of a unctuous and sweet and almost like a dark fruit power to it. 
it has lower acidity than Madeira. Madeira, your grapes are picked, it is fermented, a neutral spirit is added, and then depending on the method, it is then cooked and intentionally oxidized. And that process by which combined with the natural sugars gives the wine higher acidity, and also it will not go bad. As a sommelier, you must have, especially because of your fondness for Madeira, a complicated relationship with the process of oxidation. Uh, I wouldn't say complicated. You know, I, 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 I love, I mean, I love, I love Madeira. I love sherry. I love wines from the Jura that are intentionally oxidized. If it's good, I love it all. Same way about music. Right. But I guess the point is, in many cases, oxidation in a wine is considered a flaw, by and large. When oh, people, correct. Yeah, when, absolutely. When you come across it in literature, especially when you first start learning about wine, this is a cab from California versus this is a cab from Bordeaux. One of the, you know, in those very beginner books, you're going to come across this oxidation thing is generally a bad thing. Absolutely. Especially when you're, when you're thinking about still whites or still reds. Yeah. So, so what makes it a good thing in Madeira and maybe I guess the other question that pops in my mind is why'd they start doing that? Well, it, it has, so Madeira has this amazing, rich, crazy history. So if you could, I'm happy to tell you a little bit about the history of yeah how, yeah. how that, that happened. So I, I love, and you know, I put a little bit of romance into the history of the island, but essentially under uh, Henry the Navigator, they had, he had a, a gentleman who discovered the island by the name of Zarco. Zarco actually was not a pirate, but he did have an eye patch. Okay. So I love that his name is Zarco and he had an eye patch and he discovered this island. It's estimated between 1418 and 1420 when he actually discovered this island. So early to early age of discovery. Then. Early age of discovery, absolutely. The island itself, Madeira, comes from the name uh, Island of Woods because there's so many true trees on the island, called it Woody Island. There's some stories that possibly the Moors found on the island, possibly someone from Italy founded it before him. They also called it an Island of Woods as well during that time. Madeira itself comprises of a series of islands. Just north of it, you have Porto Santo. Uh, south of it, you have uh, the Desertas. And Desertas essentially are deserted islands. There's really not much going on there other than uh, wild bearded goats and crazy big headed rabbits on this island. Okay. That, that's what it's known for. And it's kind of a natural preserve. Zarco's family really owned most of these islands up until the 1970s. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's now they're owned by Portugal itself. Got it. So Madeira itself, uh, Zarco got permission to burn the island because he wanted to kind of increase the vegetation by burning the island, which is not often a good idea, but it did increase the fertility of the soil during that time. So th this... Might not be entirely true, but the island did burn for about seven years. And during that time, they also had a good deal of wine being produced. Some of the barrels they found were also cooked. And they ended up tasting this wine from these barrels. And they said, this is delicious. Kind of like if, if imagine if you had a fire in your apartment and you went back to your apartment and you saw a bunch of wine that was spoiled. You're probably not going to drink it. But back then they're like, no, this is good wine. We got to try this. Right. Let's see what's going on. Yeah, waste not. I heard a different kind of creation story of Madeira that involved an extremely hot voyage over the ocean. Is there any truth to that? No, there, there, there absolutely is. They, they did try to duplicate. That's, you know, and for, for port, it's called Tonovajem. 
you know, in Madeira, it's called uh, Vino de Roda, which is essentially just a round trip around the world. Uh, Thomas Jefferson himself uh, didn't trust the shippers who came from England. So when he had his Madeira, he would have it shipped to Virginia, and he would look at the amount of stamps it was on. He's like, nope, I want this to go around the world two more times before I consume it because of the natural salinity to the sea and also the natural heat from it going around the world created that kind of beautiful Madeira toffee caramelized sensation in your palate. Got it. So it was originally um, boiled, and then when people who were you know wealthy folks in the Americas like Thomas Jefferson wanted it, they then wanted to add to the aging process? Add to the natural aging process. I wouldn't say originally because the cantairo process, which just means of the sun, there's really two ways you know, to make Madeira. You know, one is what is called an estufagem. Essentially, just look at it like a, a sauna with um, kind of copper coils heating in a steam room, the Madeira. That's the artificial way to do it. Not many producers are still doing it that way. The most natural way to cook Madeira is what is called cantairo, or just of the sun. So you can imagine a room, if you go there, it's gorgeous. They have these large barrels where the punts are open. So they're open cast barrels. And the hot Portuguese sun is naturally heating the wine. For true Frescata or vintage Madeira, it's a minimum aging of about 20 years. Okay. In, in those... In those barrels. In and that sometimes, hot... Correct. And there's, you know, just natural sunlight. Certain grapes get garden exposure that that natural sunlight gets. And it's heating the Madeira, which is an amazing sight to see. So is this like an open air setup or is this like through perhaps like a pane of glass in almost like a greenhouse? Uh, more like a greenhouse, but it, it is also open air. Okay. So, I mean, you, you walk up there and, you know, it's, you have different levels, you know, maybe going about 20, 30 feet up into the air where you have these barrels up there. Mm-hmm. And so because it was fortified to between, was it 19 and 21%? 19 to 21%. Then you don't have to worry too, too much about things like yeast activity like you would in in a you know when sherry's aging for example i I think you still have to worry worry about it you definitely do so and and knowing the different producers just like different artists and music you know which producers do it stylistically different for example probably in washington dc in the u.s you see dolaveris amazing producer of madeira what they do as a production method they let the juice naturally reduce down they have these enormous or ginormous size oak barrels. And so that Madeira, that fortified wine, is naturally reducing down to kind of a beautiful, thick, rich, caramelized flavor. You go to Blandy's. Blandy's, uh, in many ways, is one of the most important producers of Madeira because they're a uh, Madeira wine company. They really represent about five different houses. They will add a percentage of that vintage's juice so it doesn't reduce down as much. So if you think of Blandy stylistically more like a crisp, bright Chablis, even though we're talking about a rich, caramelized, fortified wine, and Dolores stylistically as an opulent, say, Rhone Valley or California red wine. Right, right. That makes sense. And I, I definitely am familiar with Blandy's. That's, that's the Madeira that I've come across most often, even though I don't know a whole heck of a lot about it. I have, I have drunk the Blandy's, and uh, so that's, I think, my entry point to it here in the U.S., I have a question about what people might see on a bottle 
on a label, for example, when they go to a liquor store that has a decent selection of, let's say, ports and Madeiras. I think if you're going to see ports and or if you're going to see Madeira, you're most likely also going to see port in there as well. How can somebody, since, you, as you mentioned, the bottles are so similar, how, what words can people look for to tip them off to the fact that this is indeed a Madeira and not a port, and then if there are different styles of Madeira, what words or signifiers are they going to see on that label that indicate that? So I, I think oh, port's great. There's nothing wrong with port. It's a wonderful product, but Madeira is badass. I mean, Madeira looks cool. It has these gorgeous stenciled labels. Sometimes I would attempt to find even non-stenciled labels because you know I'm a sucker for luxury old vintage products. It'll say Madeira on it, number one. After that, you're going to look for the grapes. Madeira, whereas port, not as much is about, you know, port could have five, 10, three, 20 different grapes in it. Madeira does have some grape blending, but is mostly about one singular grape. So when you're looking at Madeira, you wanna look for stylistically based on the grape. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna break down your, your styles from driest to sweetest. Right. So Circeal, sounds like cereal, right? Circeal which another word for it in Portuguese is escana or escanguiche, which literally translates to choke. Or they might call it escanguiche cow, the dog strangler. Because this is the lightest and the brightest of the Madeira. And they say that the beautiful acidity in this style of wine is almost like a dog being strangled. That being said, I love Circeal Madeira. It's a purest, bone dry, beautiful crisp Madeira. So since it says, you know what? I typically like sherry. I like dry, crisp white wines. Circeal is the way to go. It is the best pairing for food as well. Got it. How does a dog being strangled or choked relate to acidity? I'm not quite sure. Is it the well, sound that the dog makes? I'm not sure. You know, when they came up with this grape, did they, did it happen? Or were they looking at a dog who was licking the grapes and he just looked, had this crazy asphyxiated look on his face, but, um, that sounds like a good thing to research. If yeah. Asphyxiation, grapes, and where the name comes from. Well, I know that like if you take a drink of something that's more acidic than you're perhaps expecting, like if you were to you know have something that you know, let's say you had a cocktail where the bartender accidentally put twice as much citrus into it than as they thought, they just messed yeah, up. Yeah, I, I would think you might you know you might choke up a little bit. It so. catches in the throat and like it, and you get not only the salivary response but the throat kind of like. Oh, it's like a little bit surprising. So, so definitely when talking about Madeira, I don't say that to every guest that, oh, you should try this. Yeah, you know, especially the, the, the dog strangler. Yeah. And yeah. I, I love dogs. I, I don't want dogs to be strangled at all. Yeah. You know? No. Circeal is essential. So that is your dry, dry grape. Got it. Then you have Verdello. Verdello is a little more honeyed. I wouldn't call it sweet, but slightly more sweet than Circeal. Verdello has the second most plantings on the island. Doesn't mean it's not great. You drink Verdello as a dry white wine. You'll see it in northern Portugal. You'll see it in Spain. It's delicious. Makes a beautiful Madeira. Probably my second favorite of those grapes. Mm -hmm. Then you go into your sweeter grapes. You have Buál. Uh, you'll see it spelled two different ways. B-U-A-L. That's it's from a Portuguese family. B-O-A-L uh, is it's from a British family who okay. originally owned it. This is slightly sweeter. This is a variation on Malvasia Candida. Delicious, but when you see Buell and you'll see him a lot, this means it's going to be a sweeter style. This is the one that I'm I'm most familiar with. You see Buell or Buell all the time. Then you get it into the sweetest of your four noble main Madeira grapes, which is Malmsey or Malvasia. 
which is more of kind of like that candied orange peel, apricot, whereas, you know, Buell is a little more toffee-like, Circeal is brighter and fresh, Verdello is slightly more honeyed in between, Malmsey, and that is the British word, and Malvasio would be if it is a Portuguese family that owns it, that's going to be much, much sweeter. Then you have two very rare grapes um, that are outstanding. One is Tarantej or Tarantez. This is a very dry, high acid white grape, incredibly rare. You go on the island, you might see per year, you might see you know, one barrel per year, sometimes zero per year. And even more rare is the red grape Bastardo. Delicious. This is a sweet red grape. In France, in the Jura, you'll see this as Trousseau. Uh, on Madeira, they call it Bastardo or the Bastard. So in the past 100 years, there's probably 200 barrels produced. That's it. Got it. So it's super rare. I've only in the past, I've seen a 1928 several times and I've seen in 1890. Those are the only Bastardo that I've seen. There are some new plantings over right now. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Why Why do they, is, is it an intentional restriction of the yield there or is it? Is there something, isn't there an outside factor that, that makes these more rare? It's, these two grapes are both harder to plant and they're much more scarce on the island. Okay. Uh, the last grape that's essential and is getting some notoriety and is going to be recognized as a noble grape, this has the most plantings on the entire island. It tends to be medium-bodied, I'd just say medium-sweet. It's called Tinta Negra, or sometimes mm-hmm. you see it as Tinta Negra Mole. Producer Barbieto, who makes just gorgeous, gorgeous Madeira, is kind of a specialist in the red grape Tinta Negra. That's a crossing of Pinot Noir and Grenache. Okay. Yes, I've definitely come across that a few times as well. Um, yeah, m- most most of the time, if you see a Madeira and it doesn't have the name of a grape, it's probably going to be Tinta Negra. Okay, that's good to know. You know, because I could just see somebody going up to a bottle of Madeira and then being like, Whoa, "Well, they said there was going to be a grape on there." Yeah, and it's, it's probably Tinta Negra most <laughs> okay. likely. Okay, so it seems like there's um, a little bit looser, a little bit more flexible labeling term or labeling rules. A little bit more flexible. You know, in, re- in recent years, recent being the past 20 years, they've come out with another style called Harvest or Cojeta. It means something different in port. In Madeira, this is a Madeira that is aged for less than the legal term of a vintage Madeira, but it's still 100% vintage. So you could find things from 2002, for example, or 1999 or 96. But if you look at, say, for example, Blandi's Buell 1996 Madeira, great bottle of wine. This is still 22-year-old wine at a total value, but you're not buying Blandy's 1908 or 1890 or 1954. So it's a great way. I think it's a good introductory Madeira drug to get people into drinking true vintage Madeira. Got it. Can you just explain the difference between vintage and non-vintage for, for folks? Um, just as a, I mean, if, if there's a special application of this term in Madeira, then that's great. But I think as a, as a sommelier and as somebody who educates about fortified wines, this is something that's really important for people to grasp because it has a really direct effect on uh, the price of the bottle. And then also, you know, tangentially some of the, you know, some of what you can expect from that bottle. So, so vintage is, I, I would say why I'm in wine is vintage. I love the concept of vintage. I love knowing when someone, the year someone was born, the year I was born, anniversary. Vintage is the same thing as just think the year you were born, the harvest, when the grapes are picked, that is the vintage. Got it. So if it says the year 
2001 on it, 2017, that is when those grapes were actually harvested. Doesn't mean when they're placed in the bottle, it means when they were picked. That's when the sugar for that juice was created on the vine. Correct. In certain types of fortified wines, there's distinction between vintage and non-vintage. Can you just explain that really quickly so that folks can get a grasp on it? So so vintage would mean they're at least 85% of these grapes are all picked from a specific harvest. Non, it becomes non-vintage, just like in another blending area, like champagne. And you have champagne that is taken from one, one, one vintage, that means it is only from that year. If you blend it by two different vintages, it then becomes a non-vintage wine. Right, and because these producers have considerations like you know, keeping their lights on. So they got to sell a certain amount per year and they can't be, you know, kind of just trying to greedily keep these things unadulterated as, as vintages. And then, you know, for example, in Sherry, they have the Solera system where they're then blending very often a lot of different types of juices together. That's when uh, a fortified wine is going to turn from a vintage, which has this special, almost like unadulterated aura around it almost to a non-vintage, which is not, I suppose, inherently less valuable, but it do, it just doesn't have that special distinction drawn. Well, there's two ways to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Vintage is hot. It's sexy. It's from one year. That is the year is born. But sometimes, you know, you can blend things. And if you're a talented winemaker, like I love, love old hip hop music. And I love it when you're blending different genres together and you're creating really beautiful music. The same thing applies to whether it's Madeira or Port or maybe a magical wine from Jerez when you're doing a sherry and you're blending these different vintages, you can make an awesome wine. Um, I've mentioned Barbieto before, they're they're known for blending. They do a great job on these blends, maybe it'll say 10 year or 20 year or 30 year or five year. Rare Wine Company with Barbieto, they do a series of different blends. And you'll see them all over the place. You'll see a Savannah, you'll see a Boston Bual, you'll see a, a, a Baltimore Rainwater. And what these are, on average, they're blends of about 15-year-old wine. That's enough of a selling point to say, well, I'm having an average of something about 15 years. There are other blends that they do that are 20, 30, 40, or they say, you know what? We're going to do 10% of this will be from a 100-year-old. But you know what? That's great to know. Let's blend it with some more recent vintages and make something really beautiful. Right, right. So the the flavor of the wine is going to be you know different, uh, no matter no matter whether it's a vintage or a non vintage. It's always going to have the the blender's fingerprint on it. But if you're looking at some of the prices of these vintage wines, the act of saying okay, we're keeping these grapes out of the blending for the other stuff, or you know we're we're reserving this as a vintage. That's like almost like a supply and demand thing where it's automatically going to be higher, almost. Does that make any sense? Totally. No. I mean, if, if something has a specific, if it says fresh scout on it, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be more precious. And that's why I mentioned before, terms like harvest are a great way to get something out of value. Right. Try a young five-year-old Madeira. Great way. Rainwater. Rainwater is a beautiful way to try something. You know, we're... We, we, as Americans, we consume more rainwater than anyone else in the world. Yeah, let's talk about that because that was one of my specific questions. You know, these I, I see, you know, when I go into Schneider's and I, I look at the, the uh, Madeira shelf, I see 
lots of stuff. I see vintage, I see non-vintage, I see, you know, Bual, uh, Verdeo, like all these, all these different types of words. And then I see a lot of rainwater. So what is that? So, so rainwater, so originally rainwater, it was, it was like any great advantage. It was pure happenstance an accident. Um, there's two stories, one from a, a guy from Savannah. He said he discovered it when rain just seeped into these open barrels. Um, the other story that it was two brothers from, uh, they're Scottish brothers actually, uh, who moved to Virginia. And they actually accidentally left all these barrels of Madeira on the beach right before a rainstorm. And they also left these barrels open. So they didn't have the punt on them. So the rain seeped into the, into the barrels. And they were like, oops, this could be a problem. They tasted it. They're like, this tastes pretty good. And they found a market for it. And they secretly wrote RWM, Rainwater Madeira, on each label. And as one of the ingredients moving forward, they put must have water or aqua included. Okay. So it became more diluted. And they, in many, many Americans and British, they enjoyed the pale style of Madeira at the time and was so it has slightly lower alcohol because it's more diluted and lower alcohol being maybe 18%, maybe 17 and a half percent, but still slightly lower alcohol dominated today by the red grape Tinta Negra. But originally it was based on Verdello. Okay. I, I've actually tried a uh, rainwater from 1802. My God, was it good? It was unbelievable. Just had this beautiful salinity to it. It's called the coffin and it was bottled for, it was, had the, just said the word coffin on it. I could see the number 18002 and it had the name of the port in South Carolina that it came to. Oh, wow. Which I thought was just this amazing bottle. Yeah. You must come across some really cool old bottles in your travels. Yeah, I have. Yeah, I definitely yeah. have. So with the, the rainwater, you hear this a lot in, in, in whiskey tasting or scotch tasting, bourbon, what, what have you, um, the, the addition of uh, water to the, to the whiskey at the time of service, they, you know, it's pretty universally accepted that that opens up some of the aromas, some of the flavors. With rainwater, Madeira, obviously the water is being added pre-service. You know, does that do anything for the way that we perceive the flavors, or does it simply just take it down a little bit on the alcohol it, it just it makes it it makes it so you could down uh more than your share of madeira it, it makes it much more quaffable to drink got it got it okay yeah we we americans do like the crushable uh, yeah yeah okay interesting and, and not often you don't think of when you think of fortified wines crushable you're thinking champagne crisp white wines juicy red wines but i love to hear that crushable and madeira pretty amazing so yeah <laughs> yeah we're a, largely a cocktail and home bartending podcast and so i wanted to see if there's anything in the way of cocktails that you know use madeira on the reg so it's so lots there's actually if you go to the island and they have uh, these bars right in the center of Funchal, not far from the dude who discovered Madeira's statue, Zarco's statue. You have all these tiny bars. And so I wanted to see what are people drinking. And classically, what you'll find is rainwater Madeira, kind of a rainwater Pimm's cup, if you will, mm. which is a wonderful drink. So it's just rainwater, lemonade, and tonic, and then rosemary. Okay. It yeah. is outstanding. Because you get that little flavor from the toffee, and then it's super refreshing, and the sparkling nature of the tonic. I absolutely love that drink. 
I think I had about six of those before I had a 9 a.m. tasting the next day on the island. Yeah. I felt great. And you felt great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really interesting application. The Pimm's Cup, traditionally it's with, with gin and some fruit. As you were describing that, it almost also reminded me of the way we think about a traditional punch. Um, because you've got the sweetness from the Madeira, you've got the acidity from the citrus in there, and then you've also have maybe not the spice, but certainly the herbal kind of floral addition of the rosemary that you mentioned. That is kind of to me moving in the direction of you know what could be a punch. So, do you ever see Madeiras added to you know classic um, you know traditional punches? I, I definitely have. Yeah, absolutely. I think Madeira is a great alternative. And, you know, oddly on the island, a punch, I generally, the first thing I think about is rum. On the island, you know, uh, Madeira, you know, really, wine was the number one export in Madeira up until Prohibition in the U.S. because we consume so much of it. But soon, and even in today's day, so bananas and sugarcane are huge. So the concept of using Madeira as opposed to rum in a punch makes a great drink because it's not going to be as sweet. sweet going to be, I think, in many ways, even more balanced, depending on the style that you want to use. Right. And certainly you could play with, you know, you could still add your spirit, but add less of it and then complement with the Madeira as well. One of the things that I've been really fascinated with lately in the cocktail world is adding a, a float of something. And oftentimes this is a float of something overproof. And the beauty of the overproofness of it means that usually in a cocktail, if you've ever seen those layered shots, it, it, the, the layering occurs in ascending order of proof. So the lowest proof thing tends to be on the bottom. And then what allows the things to float on top is that they are of a higher proof than what is sitting below them. And so usually when you see a float on something in a cocktail at a, fa- at a fancy cocktail bar, it's going to be something like Navy strength gin, overproof rum, something like that. But I've actually been playing around with doing some floats that are actually lower proof, you know, some, so some fortified wines and stuff. And it's not always going to sit on top and make that pretty little layer. It's eventually, as you sip, going to kind of sink down and then meld with the drink. But I really love the lower proof floats. And it strikes me that Madeira might be really good for that. Well, I think about like a Brooklyn cocktail, right? Brooklyn is a beautiful drink with red wine, but if you took that application and changed it for Madeira, I think that would still make a wonderful drink. Yeah, absolutely. Can you just, if you know the ingredients for that off the top of your head, could you just share with folks so that they they know? So a Brooklyn cocktail is essentially a whiskey sour with a float, a whiskey sour with an egg with a float of red wine right on top. Right. Great drink, beautiful color to it, delicious, very crushable. Absolutely. Yeah. It's got that nice acidity. It's got the body of the whiskey and, you know, further, further complemented by the, the structure of the egg white. And then, you know, that egg white is actually what kind of allows the, the matrix formed by the, the, the proteins in that egg white allows that nice little drizzle of white, a red wine to sit there on the top and be a really aesthetically pleasing drink as well. Very cool. So we're going to definitely throw a couple of recipes up on the show notes page. So uh, for anybody who wants to learn more about Madeira uh, and start experimenting on your own, here's what I'd recommend. One, go to the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. We're going to aggregate some of the terms, some of the vocab terms that that we've been speaking about here so that you have them all in one place, kind of the same way we did with the shochu episode where we were talking about you know all these different base grains and, and the different styles of shochu. Um, we're going to do the same thing here, same 
thing we, do, we did with Sherry as well when we sat down with Chantal, who actually recommended Michael as, as an expert. That way, when you go to the liquor store, you can you know have something just put up on your phone. You're gonna have a basic list of things to keep in mind as you purchase. And then also a few things that you can automatically try with your Madero when you get home. So we'll have all that on the show notes page. We'll also have the lightning round. So are you ready? Speaking of I'm, which- I'm ready, Let, let's lightning it up. So, yes. Yeah. All right, so what is your favorite cocktail? And if you can't name a favorite of all time, what's something that you're more obsessed with these days? You know, not to be in the same crowd as everyone, but I, I think a Negroni is, a great Negroni is the best cocktail in the world with the right ingredients. To me, Negroni is by far the best drink. It's a little bit bitter, a little bit sweet, a lot of love, outstanding drink. Another variation on it that I really love right now is essentially a Boulevardier, but I like it with scotch. Mm -hmm. So the smokiness of the scotch makes a gorgeous scotch Negroni as well. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned like when it's done with the right ingredients. For you, what are the right ingredients? We don't have any sponsors to this show, yeah. so as long as you're complimenting folks, it is there's no shame in dropping some names. Uh, so, so for me, by far, if I'm making just a classic Negroni, these guys from Fourth Haven Spirits in Bed Stuy, I think make the best combination of gin. It's this blue gin that is amazing. They do an amaro that comes from an 18th century recipe without the addition of chicken blood, which is delicious. And then they also do something called red, and red is their alternative to Campari. I okay. think the combination of those three, and they're all from the same person, is a beautiful, beautiful Negroni. Mm. I also like, you know, m most gins I think work, but I think the two essentials, whether it's your Campari or your vermouth, be it Carpano Antica, or um, I also love Koki Torino as an alternative too. I think those are all beautiful, beautiful products. Great, cool. Yeah, we always love picking apart people's Negronis and Manhattans and old fashions. It's just, uh, it's fun because everybody's, everybody's favorite is just slightly different. Cool, so if you were a cocktail tool or ingredient, what would you be and why? Well, I, a cocktail tool or ingredient, ingredient I would probably be in a Amaro. So my ancestors, even though I uh, speak more French than I do Italian, my ancestors are from Sicily, so it'd probably be a Sicilian Amaro. I mentioned I like Negroni because of the bitterness and the combination of bitter and sweet. I think I'm uh, mostly sweet, but I definitely have a little bit of bitter side too. Yeah, so a bit of an edge. Okay, yeah. great. Are there any uh, Amari that are traditionally from Sicily? Uh, well, Averna is from Sicily. Averna. You know, okay. outstanding. You know, I could also just drink... Not in Amaro, but I could drink Koki Torino right on the rocks. Probably drink the entire bottle in one sitting because it's so easy to drink. I love low alcohol spirits, especially I, I often think in a restaurant setting, it's kind of as a sandwich because I want to have an aperitif. I also want champagne. I also want a nice bottle of white and red and then Amaro at the end. So mm -hmm. you got to build those layers. You, you got to build the layers. You got to have that perfect sandwich of uh, champagne and Amaro at the end. Yeah. Very cool. I like that. The sand, the sandwich as a metaphor for uh, drink service. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. If you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? And what would you talk about? Basically, just paint a picture for us. Well, by far, it would be my... I've never met my great-grandfather. Great-grandfather came over from Italy in the late 1800s and came to New York. So, And I believe he spoke seven languages and he was a barber and kind of an amazing character who has had influence on politicians throughout New York City. This guy sounds 
incredible. So I would love to have drinks with him. And, yeah. you know, just going back to the history in the U.S., you know, um, I'd love to see what he drank, what he thought about today. I think he'd be an amazing person. Historic person other than that that I, I could have drinks drinks with, I'd probably have a good time with Shaquille O'Neal, you know, being, you know, growing from Los Angeles, you know. Yeah, he seems like he'd be a character and, you know, I wouldn't mind like having a, like a magnum of champagne with him and just the dichotomy of my height versus his height. And yeah. <laughs> he seems like he has a good sense of humor. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. And I think I could, you know, talk to him about like Seinfeld or Larry David or champagne. I think that would be great too. Mm-hmm. And also possibly the best basketball player nickname of all time, the big Aristotle. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Shaquille O'Neal and your great grandfather. Okay. Very cool answer. I noticed that you brought along a book with you. So now would probably be a good time to ask if there are any books about Madeira that are particularly influential or valuable to you. So so back when I met Manny Burke, um, he was actually doing research in DC for this book. So this is, so it's an expanded second edition from Noel Corset's The Island Vineyard of Madeira. So he essentially re-edited the book. It's the only essential Madeira book that everyone should have, I think, by far. There's another book just called Madeira, which is good, but this book is much easier to read. Gorgeous pictures, it has an appendix, has tasting notes going back to the late 1600s, which is kind of cool. So if I want to reference something, or when I was buying old Madeira at the time, I could literally send Manny a text and say, hey, I got an offer for this. And you'd say, no, that doesn't exist. That's fake or that's real. And I love having that reference point. But this book definitely has that in it. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll link to that in the show notes and folks can pick up a copy. And I do find that when you are first trying to get into a new spirit, yes, there's the expense of the bottle or two that you start off with. But I think adding to that the expense of a really good guidebook is not going to hurt. It it might seem like more than you want to spend initially, but in my experience, if you're totally new to the game, having something written down to guide you through the process of tasting, the history of it is, it really supplements the process and it actually makes you more likely to, you know, really sink into it as opposed to having it just be a passing phase that, you know, then the bottles start collecting dust and it's not valuable. And and have a drink while you're reading. It's a great experience, you know, reading a book, sipping slowly on a glass of wine. I mean... Nothing like that. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice either as a sommelier who's been, you know, professionally tasting wine? You know, this can come in the form of, you know, bad advice that often gets given out. Or do you have any uh, advice that you would you would like to see given out more to people who are just starting their journey into wine or Madeira or cocktails or what have you? Well, I mean, I, th- I think the number one advice I'd give someone who says, you know, wow, I want to be a sommelier. Think of it as right now there, there's a huge push for certifications and getting to a point, you know, but have an understanding that it's, it's a service that we do and have fun with it. Have a lot of fun with it. Get reference points that have nothing to do with wine. Because at the end of the day, if you could only talk about wine, then you're gonna, we're going to call you iRobot sommelier as opposed to someone, you know, um, once when I, I, was, I had uh, six sommeliers that worked for me at John George, big team. All of them were great. But some people, when they're just so monofocused on learning about wine, I once asked, I said, tell me about, I, I just referenced Chewbacca. And they're like, who's Chewbacca? And I think 
understanding what Star Wars is, E.T., read great literature, read about everything in the world so you have a well-rounded reference for wine. I think that is something that's essential. You know, as a bartender, it's, it's understanding your guests and listen to them, listen to what they love. Right. And, you know, another great quote I had, this is um, from my time at French Laundry, you know, someone said, don't let the guests get in the way of their own experience. And what that means is even though the guests could say, I like X, Y, and Z, give them something that they love, listen to them and make sure that they're going to love it. Because a lot of times that experience will teach us, you know, how do you give that guest a good time? How do you make them have a lot of fun? Right, right. Yeah, what you were saying earlier about, uh, you know, kind of broadening your, your horizons beyond the, the thing that you're, you're focusing on, it, what, what occurs to me is that flavor and especially tasting notes and pairings uh, with food, f- the way we talk about flavor and the way that we structure pairings, it's all a metaphor. It's, you know, there's no toffee in this Madeira. Toffee is a metaphor for a flavor that is in there that you're experiencing. And those metaphors can go beyond like foods and flavors and tastes. They can go, I had my, my wife once told me that a wine tasted like marshmallow and I kind of shot her down. And then I went online to a forum and I saw that people were identifying marshmallow in these tasting notes. And I felt like, you know, I, I realized in that moment how reductive I had been with my focus on what could be in a wine or what could is supposed to be there. Um, so I think if you can broaden that focus, um, then that really helps you. And Eric, I, I love poetry and art and history. At the end of the day, though, when we're describing wine, I think sometimes sommeliers, and I've been guilty of this too, we get lost in the description, in the poetry. You know, grapefruit peel, apricot smells like you're kissing heaven, whatever it is. But at the same time, I feel like taking it back a notch and referring to the body and the texture and the science of the flavor helps the guest know. At the end of the day, you just have to look at the guest in the eye and say, this wine's really delicious and you're going to love it. Yeah. You don't need to say anything else. Right. Eye contact, smile, you make the guest fall in love with what they're drinking and that's it. But a lot of times you'll hear another table and they're like, oh, this is floral. And and then you have these trigger words like licorice or sweet or dry or acid, and they could turn people off or turn people on. But when it comes down to it, body and weight and texture, everyone relates to that. Right. You know, milk is full bodied. Water is light. Oh, this is a light, crisp wine. You're going to love it. This is a heavy, rich wine. What do you typically drink? Oh, you typically drink California Cabernet. Great. How about a wine from Spain? You know, you know your playlist better than the guest does. Right, exactly. Cool. Well, I think that's a, a great place to, to end up. Hopefully, you've inspired some folks to uh, go out and, and learn more if they've been pondering the sommelier track. Uh, is there any, any organizations that you might recommend for really quickly just as uh, resources uh, on the path to certification? But they're, they're all great. I mean, honestly... I'm an expert at, at failing. I failed the Master Sommelier exam four times. Love what they've done. The Quarter Master Sommeliers is a beautiful, beautiful area. The Wine and Spirits Education Trust is also excellent. It just depends what, where, where, where your learning modality goes. Both of them, I think, are great. I think the number one thing for people, though, it is not certification. Work for free. If you mm-hmm. want to really get into wine, so how do I do it? Go into a restaurant you love, say, I will work for free. I want to learn from you. Sure. Apprenticeship, I think you can learn more than anything else. 
Got it. Yeah, uh, if you're in the Washington, D.C. metro area, the uh, Capital Wine School is a WSET um, certification program. They, they do testing there. That's up in Friendship Heights, and I'm sure that the Court of Master Sommeliers also has a presence here. So check that out. And if people have questions about Madeira um, or if they just kind of want to chat you up about something, is there any way that they can get in touch with you online or via social media? De- definitely. So I both on Instagram, uh, my Instagram is uh, scaffsom. So you can definitely contact me there at any time. Just my last name, S-C-A-F-F-S-O-M-M. Twitter is the exact same. And there I'm very easy, easily contactable right now. So great. Love to reach out. Anyone who has questions, wants to learn more about Madeira. Actually, I'll be taking part in SOMCON which is the end of this month. So if you go online, SOMCON, um, I'll have a panel. On my panel, I will have David Metz, who's the wine director at the Jefferson, and also Bill Jensen. Bill Jensen is owner and wine director over at Tail Up Goat, just talking about how Madeira is essential pretty much for every you know wine or beverage professional. Sure. And is that going to be around here in D.C.? Yeah, it's going to be. This is going to be held at the Westin in Georgetown. Okay, great. We will link to that in the show notes. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your your expertise and your passion. Um, my pleasure. Yeah, great to be here. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. Madeira Insights and Sommelier Tips by Michael Scafidi, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Barkhart production, copyright 2018.